Good evening. Well, the picture on Ukraine's borders is pretty confusing because the Russian defence ministry claim that troops are returning to base. And yet today, big NATO summit in Brussels and their secretary general, Jens Stoltenberg, says we have not seen any evidence of the withdrawal of Russian forces. So what is Putin's game? What's he up to? What are his genuine intentions? I've been sceptical, as those that watch this programme regularly will know, I've been sceptical about the idea that he was going to launch a mass invasion. It seemed to me it would be a somewhat disastrous thing for him to do. And yet, what he has done is put a bit of fear, a bit of terror into the West. It may be a very thuggish, slightly outdated tactic, but it certainly worked to that degree. And he's caused the most enormous divisions within the European Union, who are now completely incapable of speaking with one voice. The Poles, the Baltic states and Germany having effectively diametrically opposed uh, positions. And the German Chancellor Schultz saying nothing when it comes to the question of sanctions. I think what Putin has also done is further expose the weakness of the American president. And now they're, after Afghanistan, lack really of leadership of the West. Uh, but I thought the real kicker came today when the finance minister in Russia, Anton Siliwanov, said that if sanctions were imposed, economic sanctions were imposed on Russia, whilst they would be awkward, they wouldn't be that painful, and that it would reroute its energy supplies. You see, this is Putin showing Europe who the boss really is is. And Germany, uh, as a result of its very, very active green campaign, has left itself completely in hock to Russian gas. Otherwise, the car manufacturing industry closes down. So to me, Putin's game has been about showing power, spreading fear, dividing the West, and also perhaps to get us to debate whether NATO should continue its ever eastwards expansion. But please tell me, what do you think? What is Putin's game in your view? Farage at gbnews.uk. Well, I'm very pleased to be joined now by General Lord Richard Dannett, former Chief of the General Staff. Richard, good evening. Uh, Nigel, good evening to you. What is Putin's game? What is his intention? Was he ever really intending a full-scale military invasion? Um, my own view is, is no. Um, and I've been consistent in that view that uh, he will not invade in the way that it's feared that he might. But other, as your introduction suggested, um, what he's done is assembled a significantly meaningful force on the borders of Ukraine. He's intimidating, he's bullying, he's threatening, yep. and he's achieving what he wanted to achieve, which was to capture the attention of the West. Now, I, I slightly disagree with your introduction in, in one regard, mm. and that is, has he or has he not divided the West? Because, of course, what he really wanted to do was exactly that. Scrape Vladimir Putin to the core, and you find, and I've said this before, you find an unreconstructed KGB colonel whose beloved Warsaw Pact and Soviet Union was destroyed by the harmony of the West, the solidarity of NATO, in 1989 when the wall came down. What he would love more than anything else is to break up the solidarity of NATO in particular. Now, the EU may be fragmented from a political point of view, but I think what we've seen coming out of uh, Brussels and NATO headquarters today is that NATO, by and large, is holding the line. And that's, 
that's a disappointment as far as uh, Putin is concerned. But um, on a different level, uh, I believe he is achieving what one of the things that he really wanted to achieve, and that is to diminish the likelihood, perhaps to zero, of Ukraine uh, ever joining NATO. And for, from a sort of Russian perspective, from Mr. Putin's point of view, I can kind of understand why he wants to prevent that. Uh, Russia yes. and Ukraine have always had a very special relationship. Uh, Ukraine has a very special place in uh, Russian people's hearts. Uh, Khrushchev, that famous, uh, famous Soviet leader, was uh, Ukrainian. Ukraine. And the thought that Ukraine would ever be a separate country and allied to the West is hugely offensive to many Russians. So I think the West has got to think long and hard about any further expansion of NATO, well, maybe even the EU. Uh, I am delighted. As far as Ukraine is concerned. Richard Danner, I am delighted to hear you say that, because I've been feeling worried about this for three decades, the ever eastward expansion of both the EU and NATO as well. And of course, it was EU expansion that caused that revolution that happened inside Ukraine back in 2014. But I heard today Alexander Stubb, former prime minister of Finland, saying very publicly that he's launching a campaign now within Finland to get Finland to join NATO. So it isn't just Ukraine. This, this act of, as perhaps a paranoid Russian may see it, encirclement based on their history continues. What I don't understand, Richard, you and I are talking about this, about limits to NATO expansion. And I'm with you 100% on this. But I didn't hear anybody suggesting at the NATO summit today that that's even on the table. And when British government ministers are asked about this, they say, well, it's a sovereign decision of Ukraine. If they want to join, they can. But just because they want to join doesn't mean we should want them to. Why are we not having a bigger conversation about this? Well, Nigel, I think we should. And I think there are a number of other factors that need to be given due weight. One is that under the North Atlantic Treaty, which is the treaty that uh, underpins NATO, there is a clause that says that any applicant nation if it's having a border dispute with a neighbor, will not be considered for membership. Well, unless I've got something wrong, since 2014, uh, Ukraine has been having a very um, bloody dispute with Russia. So that series of events for the last eight years actually rules out uh, Ukraine being considered for, for NATO membership at, at the present moment. And, and of course, all the Western leaders who have beaten a path to Vladimir Putin's door, whether they've got through the door and sat at the end of a long table or got closer to him or not. Uh, they've been saying certain things in public about um, you've got to withdraw and we're going to impose economic sanctions. But what you and I, Nigel, don't really know is what they might have been whispering um, just behind their hands, which may well be that, um, that we're going to think long and hard about Ukraine joining NATO and even quieter, perhaps they shouldn't join at all. Now, I set that against the absolute importance and significance of supporting Ukraine as an independent country, a country with sovereign territory that we should help her to defend and uphold the integrity of. But that is different from joining NATO. And given the very special position of Ukraine, not Finland, not Sweden, but Ukraine, I think it's a completely different ballgame about whether Ukraine should join NATO. And I'll be as clear as I can, I believe she shouldn't uh, join NATO. Equally, I don't believe that uh, Putin is going to invade. Now, I could be wrong about one tomorrow morning and one in five or ten years' time. But uh, th those are my views. 
uh, as we sit here on the 16th of February 2022. You couldn't possibly be clearer on either issue. And thank you very much indeed for joining me tonight here on GB News. Well, folks, I have to tell you, I thought they were very wise words from General Lord Richard Dannett. Uh, of course, I think that because it mirrors what I've been thinking. But I have been fascinated that we've just not had this proper debate about endless NATO expansion. There's a man who wants us to have it. And I'm thrilled. Now, the migrant crisis. We're not talking much, of course, with Storm Dudley about small boats crossing the English Channel at the moment. But a couple of pieces of news overnight. One is that Policy Exchange, a conservative think tank, have put out a report making a series of suggestions saying that either we should take passengers straight back to France or we should ship them off to a British territory for processing. Um, and that actually what we really ought to do is what the Australians did 10 years ago and say, if you have attempted to enter our country via these means, you will never qualify for refugee status. And I, I'm sure Priti Patel will look at the policy exchange report and be thrilled that these arguments are being made. None of it, of course, works until we redefine our situation with just not the United Nations, but also with the European Court of Human Rights and indeed the Human Rights Act in this country. But something else that emerged overnight was a story about migrants jumping on lorries and coming into the country. So we know, don't we, that 28,400 people that we know of crossed the English Channel last year in small boats, were processed and are now living in accommodation in this country. We've not heard much about people trying to get to the UK in the back of lorries. I kind of thought we'd been told again and again that there was this new equipment that could uh, detect heat spots and stop this problem from happening. But Mark White, GB News' home and security editor, uh, that isn't the case, is it? No, I mean, this issue of migrants trying to get into the back of small lorries has never really gone away, although, of course, the focus, understandably, has been on this very significant growing crisis in the English Channel, the yeah. use of small boats. Uh, and you were right, about a, a decade ago, uh, we had a very significant problem with people getting onto the backs of lorries. It was pretty much every day we were getting reports out from the Road Haulage Association and others about drivers being threatened and attacked by migrants and gang leaders who were trying to get them on the back of lorries. Then there was a significant increase in the border force presence because we have, of course, the uh, Latuke agreement that... Uh, juxtaposed borders that allows for UK border force personnel to go to these French ports. Uh, so they upped the number of border force personnel there. They introduced the carbon dioxide detectors and the like. Yeah. Uh, and pretty and, much... And, and built fences, I mean, around, very, very you know, around yeah. Eurotunnel. Incredible, yeah. the number of fences yeah. that got built. And, of course, we paid for it all. But, but so it's a lot... Fortress Cali now. Yeah, no, it is. So a heck of a lot was yeah. done. And that was why, as I say, most people in their minds thought perhaps this problem had gone away. What were the figures we heard overnight? Well, we heard that uh, last year some 9,000 migrants, obviously not anywhere near the 28,000 who've come mm. across by small boats, uh, but 9,000 crossed last year. That's a 30% increase on the year before. But the issue uh, and the significance about coming in the backs of lorries, which differs from those coming in small boats, as you know, 95% of the small boats that come across get intercepted by Border yes. Force or RNLI uh, vessels. Some make it ashore. 
and some of those on the boats tried to disappear into the hinterland. It's different with the lorries because the lorries that come across successfully without being detected in terms of migrants in the back, well, then they head up the M1, the M6 or wherever they go, pull into a filling station and the occupants of that lorry disappear. So we we know about 9,000 that have been taken off these lorries. We don't know about how many may have been on the lorries and never taken off. Um, right, so it's 9,000 that we know of, but it's likely to be considerably higher. I think higher. So significantly higher than that. More pressure. And finally, Mark, this policy exchange report, this is what Priti Patel wants to hear, isn't it, from a Conservative think tank? Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting, this. I don't think she needs reminding about just how exercised uh, <laughs> her voters are about the issue of, of immigration. But uh, they, they certainly make some key points there, and I think she'll certainly be looking because they have spoken, the British government, about the potential for offshoring some of these uh, migrants who come across and that acting as a disincentive. But, of course, the difficulty, and you mentioned it in your introduction there, is the the human rights legislation in the courts in this country. There'll be an almighty battle. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The courts, if, if they were and, to try and choose that. And a heyday for human rights lawyers. Of that, there is no doubt. Mark White, as ever. Thank you. Well, joining me now to discuss this further is Kevin Saunders, former Chief Immigration Officer for the UK Border Force at Calais. Kevin, good evening. This was a problem that you were very familiar with. Good evening, Nigel. Yes, it was uh, something that I know something about, having been there, done it and got the T-shirt. And... Kevin, I mean, you know, Mark White and I talked about the fact that it became Fortress Calais. The fences were built, the carbon dioxide detectors. Um, What more needs to be done? Well, I'm not quite sure where everybody have got their figures from, because I can't equate these figures to what is actually happening. Go on. Um, They're not official Home Office figures. From what I can gather... They're figures that have been taken by um, a, a migrant group. Um, so I would take the figures with a, uh, Kevin, a bit of a pinch of salt. Th- these, figures ca- these figures come from Migration Watch, who are a very highly yeah. respected think tank in this area. Oh, I, I've no, no doubt about that at all. But they do not uh, equate to what I know is going on. All right, so, tell, tell us. I, tell I us. have to say that I would take them with a pinch of salt. I, I might be completely wrong, but I don't think I am. Now, and what do you think is really Calais going on Dunkirk, then, Kevin? Sorry, at Calais, Dunkirk and the Channel Tunnel, we're using dogs to, to sniff the, the people out of the lorries. And we're running uh, virtually 100% check at Dover, Calais and Dunkirk. What's happening... And they, they of course, are juxtaposed ports where we've got plenty of time and we can do it. With other ports of entry into the UK, we're not quite so efficient. So I I do wonder if this increase uh, in people getting through are coming through at other ports Uh, rather than the channel ports. Okay. Well, that may well be the case. And there are over 100 ports, um, some of them quite small, but over 100 ports in the UK. Um, And, Kevin... Let's just go back very quickly, if we can. Uh, small boats not crossing the channel at the moment, obviously, with the weather. Um, any thoughts as to how many might come this year? Oh, I think we'll be looking at 100,000 without any uh, 
any um, problems at all with that. Wow. Unless, unless we go to Plan B, which came out in this report. And I think that that is a very positive idea yeah. um, of taking them offshore. Yeah, yeah. Look, I have to say, I think what Policy Exchange have come out with today, uh, they, they provide a variety of solutions, all of which could work. Kevin Saunders, thank you once again for joining us. We'll talk to you again on this issue before too long. Now, people who have wood burners absolutely love them. And yet, starting with Michael Gove a couple of years ago, they were told these were bad. These were really environmentally dangerous. Legislation was brought in. Turns out the figures weren't right. How could we ever trust what governments tell us? So what is Putin's game, was the question I posed to you earlier. One viewer says, the same game as NATO. Not sure I agree with that, actually. Colin says, he's only flexing his muscles. James says, showing how divided the EU is with regard to defence, and he is succeeding. Floyd says, all that intelligence that bombs were going to be dropped at 2.30am, I'd be asking questions about that, really. MSM, scaremongering again. Well, tell you what, certainly... The American administration have been doing that. Another viewer says Putin is sneaky and can't be trusted, as we know by experience. He is playing poker and winning. But if he starts to lose, he will go in for the kill. Like the megalomaniac that he is, he is evil personified. Well, a lot of people don't like Vladimir Putin. And I can't pretend to be on a personal level much of a fan. But when it comes to geopolitics, he's actually quite good at it. Now, over the course of the last 15, 20 years... Wood burners at home have become ever more popular. And the reasons are pretty clear. Uh, the stoves are relatively cheap to run. Uh, they use, in the main, local coppiced wood, as opposed to wood that's brought in from outside. And for those living in rural parts of the country or on the sea, uh, where power cuts are quite common, uh, they do give a certain guarantee. But we were told by Michael Gove a few years ago, this is no good. Wood burners are no good. And as the government pursues its net zero strategy, we were told that 38% of all fine particulate material in the atmosphere was coming from wood burners. And as a result of that, we saw legislation put in place that has banned the use of certain types of fuel and stopped many of the wood burners that were for sale becoming illegal. As it turns out, the figure is less than half of that. Well, I thought we'd find out a little bit more about wood burners and why people love them. Um, and I have to say, I've got one. A bloke called Dave came round on Monday and told me, you know what, all these figures are exaggerated. It looks like, Dave, you were right. Clive Scott is director of the National Chimney Sweeping Safety Association and joins me down the line. Now, Clive, um, I guess you're pleased to hear these figures. Well, yeah, we're pleased to hear these figures, but um, these figures um, contain all domestic burning. So it's not just the wood burning stoves, but it's um, burning um, in the garden, having bonfires, burning green wood, wood fired fire pits, um, wood fired pizza ovens. So really, when you break it down, the, the actual figure for the wood burning stoves works out around about eight or nine percent, as I know it. 
Right. So what, tell me, why is it? I mean, as you know, people who've got wood burners absolutely love them. It, it becomes a real part of their lives. Why has government sought to victimise them? Well, it's the chimney sweeps associations. We've, we've got no idea. Um, it's obviously someone sort of trying to demonise these things for ulterior motives, whatever they are. But if you look at the facts, I mean, you know, they're encouraging us all now to go electric and, and, and everything like that and banning the, the use of gas. But if we get a power cut or anything like that, wood burners are the secondary form of heat and they're a backup. They, they guarantee that that house will get heated. Um, so why are they saying, you know, what, what they've been saying uh, for all these years? And it was really nice today to come home and read in uh, the paper that these figures have been put out there um, when The Guardian have been banging on about 38%. And I'm sure that they must have known it wasn't 38% because I did, and I'm just a humble chimney sweep. You know, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because governments told us a few years ago to drive diesel, not petrol cars, because they were better. They urged us to get rid of our wood burners because of the damage they were doing. And we find out, actually, the figures are very different. Difficult to believe anything, uh, frankly, at times, they tell us. How many of your customers um, have been thinking about giving up their wood burners to follow Boris Johnson's net zero target? Well, probably about two years ago when all this came out, I mean, we were getting inundated with calls saying, can we still use our wood burners? Are, are, are they going to make them, us take them out of our properties? You know, and we're trying to sort of like convince the clients that this is not going to happen. Um, so basically, yeah, well, we've, we've been getting calls recently about it as well, where they're saying, you know, we've, we've just had a, an eco-friendly stove put in, um, are we allowed to carry on using it? You know, I mean, we're trying to convince these people out there that they're, they're fine to use, they're sort of 80 plus percent effective. Uh, you know, it's, it's basically they've been frightening the life out of the general public who have got yeah. these burners. I mean, the older style burners, you know, they weren't that um, effective, really. I mean, the emissions that they put out were probably were higher, the same as open fires. But the, the new eco design stoves, you know, are so efficient. Um, and it just gives people comfort at night. I mean, it's, it's better than looking at a, a boiler or a radiator. They, they get some relaxation from the wood burners as well. No, they do. Clive Scott, I've got one. I love it. I'm not giving it up. And thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening. And isn't it ironic, course, folks, sir. with all this going on, that Drax, that power station up in Yorkshire, burns 7 million tonnes of wood every single year and all of it is imported into this country. It's grossly inefficient and it's become one of the biggest CO2 producers in the whole of the United Kingdom. And yet, our wood burners have been under attack. Well, I was pleased to see that today. One or two stories today that are actually cheering me up. But one that really mystifies me. I mean, talk about a what the Farage moment. So Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign paid an internet company to access servers in Trump Tower and later in the White House. And there's been an investigation by a man called John Durham, and he's looked at the origins of the whole Russia inquiry, or what turned out to be, as it was with Brexit in this country, the total Russia hoax. A few years ago, a president called Nixon was involved in illegally getting access to information that had come from Democrat HQ. It led to Nixon resigning as President of the United States of America. 
Yet in this case, it is absolutely clear as the nose on your face that Hillary Clinton's campaign were involved in illegal spying activities. Now, she's not the president, thank goodness, so, of course, she can't resign. But here is the utterly bizarre thing. The Russia hoax, both here and in America, went on for a couple of years, non-stop. It was Russian interference. It was Russian money that led to Brexit and Trump. It was endless. When it turns out that actually none of it's true, in this, in this country's case, when it turns out in America uh, that much of this information actually was stolen and wasn't right anyway, the bizarre thing is there is almost no coverage of this story on American mainstream media or British mainstream media whatsoever. And you can like Donald Trump, as I do. You can dislike Donald Trump, as I'm sure many of you at home do. But the sheer unfairness with the way in which this is all handled is completely outrageous. And it goes to show <clears throat> that the comments Trump was making, that he'd been spied on, those comments that were laughed, those comments that were mocked, those comments that were lampooned, have turned out to be absolutely true. And there is something really, really going wrong in our Western democracies. Now, we've talked a lot about the cost of living. And I know since I came here at GB News, I've been talking a fair bit about inflation, saying that central banks have underestimated it. The governments don't really understand what's going on. Well, we got the figures this morning and inflation has now hit another 30 year high. It's five and a half percent. It's projected to be perhaps over seven percent by the spring. <clears throat> but the amazing thing that I thought about it was this. YouGov conducted a poll and 71 percent of you, and that includes 57 percent of those who voted Conservative in the last election, said the government is mishandling the issue. Now, as I say, it's the highest rate, that January rate, the highest rate since we go back all the way to March 1992. And what is real inflation? Well, wage inflation certainly isn't going to keep up with the rate of inflation. Real inflation in terms of people's pockets, but it depends, I guess, how you live your life. But uh, let's just say you're a family with a couple of cars that need to drive a lot. Well, it isn't just your gas bill that's worrying you. It isn't just your electricity bill that's worrying you. Actually filling the car up is now the most expensive it has ever been. And the government is taking some of the blame for this. And that, electorally, as we look forward to the next general election, which, of course, latest will be at the end of 2024, you know, the one thing that Conservatives need to win re-election is people to think they're competent in terms of their handling of the economy. Yes, there are many other things in life that influence how we feel and how we vote, but particularly for Conservatives, management of the economy and confidence of the public that they are the right party to do it is absolutely crucial. This is just one poll, but I think it's quite a big warning shot for the government and something that certainly is going to make Rishi Sunak think very hard. Back to my big question of the day. You know, what is Putin's game? What are his intentions? More of your thoughts and comments coming in. Peter says, this was a joint Belarus exercise that the US was informed about. Biden and his warmongers thought they could be clever 
and suggest Russia, Russia was about to invade. It was always nonsense. Well, certainly, uh, in terms of warning uh, about this, uh, the Americans have been the most extreme of all. I will say just that. Pete says he wants continual destabilization of the eastern edges of the EU and NATO. It's hardly a secret. The problem is that NATO and the EU is far too cumbersome to react as quickly as needed. I'm not sure. I think the bigger problem with the EU and with NATO actually is not short-term tactics and response. It's actually big strategy. You know, how is it in the interests of us as a NATO member to let Ukraine, which is deeply divided and very corrupt and borders on to Russia, how is it in our interests to let them in? And I think the same applies in many ways to the European Union. We're just not having, or I mean, Richard Dannett was earlier, but we're just not having those debates in the way that I really think we should be. John says, Mr. Putin has made his point by revealing how divided the West is. Mary says, is Russia playing up because he sees, as do other enemies, weak leaders in the West? Robert says, Putin is having a laugh and a power game. He is showing the EU and the West that he has the power. Well, he is uh, certainly doing a bit of that. Now, in a moment, joining me on Talking Pines, somebody who took a very different view to me on the European Union referendum, but that's a long, long time ago. I'll be joined here by Sir Martin Sorrell, businessman and advertising supremo. It's that time of the day, thank goodness. The GB News Tavern is open and joining me here on Talking Pints is Sir Martin Sorrell. Sir Martin. Well, I'm not having a pint. Well, you haven't got to. We don't, we, we don't force you to. I was allowed to have a cup of tea. You can have whatever you like. The concept, the concept is not based around alcohol. It, <laughs> it's based around the idea that it's not like normal television interviews. It's a chat, it's a conversation, okay, and you can say what the hell you like. Well, we are before the watershed. Well, we'll but, okay. But <laughs> okay. Well, I would try and curb my instincts. <laughs> now, talking about that, you are a workaholic, aren't you? Uh, micromanager is what some people call it. <laughs> Which I think is a compliment. I don't think that's... An, I think being interested in the details is important. I, no, I, I, I enjoy my work. My dad always said, you know, find something that you enjoy. Yep. Uh, an industry you enjoy and then find a company within it that you enjoy and build a reputation. If you fancy go off and doing something on your own, do it. Do it. So, you know, you've got those years at Saatchi and Saatchi. Yeah. And, of course, that's the time of the very famous post. The first iteration, yes, the first the political campaign. Yeah, Labour and, what a ca and what a campaign it was. Labour isn't working. Was incredible. Yeah, there was a, there were other campaigns as well. British British Airways, the the Jaffa campaigns, the Israeli mm -hmm. Citrus, I think it was called. So that was um, Charlie Sarch's and Morris Sarch's. That, that's where their blooding was. I, I suppose the BA campaign, Manhattan Landing, yep. was the most famous. John King was revamping British Airways uh, with Colin, and uh, that campaign really sort of repositioned. British Airways, uh, in a way, and, and oh, the Labour isn't working. I, I see the Labour Party actually did seize upon Labour isn't working, and the government isn't working. Yeah, I know. I, it, it, it's one of those. It's one of those in political Iconic terms. Images. Yeah, absolutely. But it's also a theme that gets repeated again absolutely. and again and again. Absolutely. But something said to you that being part of a big company wasn't really any good. You had to do your own thing. 
Now, my dad said, you know, build a reputation. And if at the age of 40, that was the age, that was the age when you, you, you don't remember when you were 40, do you? <laughs> I looking do, just. Back, looking back <laughs> to the first 20 years, you know, that's when, and then you retire at 60. That was no longer, but... So you look back, and that's, so that's when I started uh, WPP in 85, when I was 40. Always sort of hankered after doing that. I mean, you could do anything you wanted to do as such, is to be fair. Nothing was impossible, yeah. as long as you got no credit for it. That was... <laughs> <laughs> oh, big firms are like that. <laughs> I'm not saying GPUs, I promise. Interestingly, you know, you chose to buy a company that existed already, a manufacturer... Making what a basket manufacturer, Dartford Kent, not yeah. down in uh, <laughs> not the London Loop. Um, no, this was uh, this is in Dartford, and Gordon Sampson was was the owner of it. And um, actually, you know, he believed, believed in buying things from the liquidator. And uh, I went with a stockbroker, Preston yep. Rabel, and I went to Dartford, and we were. Uh, Gordon asked us to come for lunch at about one thirty, so that was the time where well, he didn't actually ask us to come for lunch. We asked us for the appointment at one thirty. And we were starving. I mean, Dartford High Street. And I said to uh, Preston, I'm absolutely starving. We're past a fish and chip shop. And we went and got a bag of chips. We smelt of vinegar and salt when we went into the Dartford Wireworks. And Gordon thought, to his dying day, sadly, thought that we had sort of fixed it to, be, to appear to be men of the people ah. by smelling of fish. <laughs> but what, how does, I mean, why do you buy a wire basket manufacturer? It's a shell company. Just a shell company. What the Americans yeah. now call a SPAC, yeah. but that's yeah. a little bit more yeah. expensive game with, with 20% promotes or 25% promotes and lots of hidden fees, and it's a much more complicated process. Now, this was a, a cash shell, not a cash shell. It had a manufacturing business. And we, we said we wanted a very simple manufacturing business that we understood, um, mature but not senile management, because they had to manage the fa- manufacturing business whilst we took it in mm-hmm. to services. And, of course, the, the rest is history. We did, I think, 18 deals within about 18 months, and then we launched into America, and we did the reverse takeover, effectively, of J. Walter Thompson in 1987. It hadn't started with WPP in 85. So it moved very quickly, didn't it? It moved very quickly, yes. Why is that? Was there a gap in the market? Had you spotted something that the um, others hadn't? I don't mean a gap. I mean, a lot of this is sort of serendipity. I mean, a lot of it is... Uh, luck plays a very important part of it. My dad used to say, you know, you make your own luck. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're persistent and energetic, you make your own luck. But, you know, we, we seized upon what was called, then called the below-the-line activities in advertising and marketing, which were not the sexy areas, the above-the-line, the Manhattan land and la- landing yeah. and ma- laborism working, that sort of above-the-line TV campaigns attracted all the attention. There were a lot of things going along in design and promotion that were less fashionable, which had not been consolidated. So we started the 18 deals or whatever it was that we did in the first couple of years were focused initially in the UK and then in the US on the below-the-line sectors, which were really unloved and, and, and actually from a... Uh, was, was the industry growing? The industry I mean, well, I mean, was we... growing. Well, it's interesting, you know, just listening in the, in the green room just before, you know, you, you pointed to inflation. Right? Mm. And, of course, in the, in the 80s and the 90s, we had much more significant inflation. That's a driver for ad spending because we'll see it again this year. It's an interesting point. If clients like take Unilever you know its volume growth was very high in the last quarter at four percent but it was all price not volume inflation is driving prices Mm -hmm. to convince consumers to accept 
that sort of level of pricing, you're going to have to put more money behind advertising and marketing. Okay. So, so, so the 80s, to your point, yeah. the, in the 80s, uh, the late 70s, the 80s and into the 90s, when inflation was much more significant, that drove to some extent the growth. I mean, it, when I was at Saatchi's, interestingly, advertising spend would grow at twice the level of GDP growth. Uh, in, the, in this new millennium, its advertising proportion to GMP slipped, for example, in the US from 2% to 1%, but is now growing again back to about 1.75% because of the growth of digital advertising, which is a new yeah, technological-based yeah. development. Yeah, but going back to your question, in those days, inflation was a driver of, of spending, and you're sort of seeing that a little bit last year. And you're seeing a bit of you build this into a massive company. Yeah, the largest advertising. Well, we've done, we've done it twice. We did it with Sarges, yep. with yep. Morris and Charles. And yep. We did it with WPP. And who knows what we might do with it. Well, yeah, and it sort of didn't come to the best end for you. But, that, but and I, I'm not going to dwell on that. Uh, we all have ups and downs in life. And you had a, you know, a bit of a public shellacking and all the rest of it. But it wasn't a moment to retire. No, I mean, uh, there were... I mean, you had enough money to retire. Yes, I, but I, I never really wanted to retire, Nigel. I mean, it, it, you know, the, the portfolio, I, retirement, playing golf, um, you might be a great golfer, but um, not something I think of it. I work for Mark McCormack, but I thought it was a bit of an old man's game. <laughs> well, I think it's a bit of an old man's game, so I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do portfolio stuff. Uh, I didn't want to do private equity. And in a way, our stru the structure at S4 is quite interesting because it has sort of private equity dimensions to it in a listed company form. So it's quite exciting in its way. Now, going back to, to, to the WPP experience, mm. I, you know, I, my, view, my view was that uh, my, my advice to anybody was choose your, would be choose your, your company chairman carefully um, and, and look at that, those dynamics. But, you know, I think... We, we, we had some criticism in 2017 for not adapting to the technological changes as rapidly, mm -hmm. which I think was probably fair criticism. You know, when you're trying to move a company with well over 100,000 people, arguably 200,000 people in 113 countries, it's not, and multi-branded, it's a multi-branded model, so you have different communities, different verticals yeah. that are sort of fighting with one another a little bit and not uh, in a much more unified purpose, which we have at uh, S4 now with a unitary one single P&L. And you've gone completely 21st century now. It isn't big Well, I, I was so old when I left WPP at 73. <laughs> I thought I, I, I was too old and tired to wrestle with, with slow growth or no growth, which is what the analogue holding companies have to wrestle with. So I, I used the Gretzky uh, phrase, you know, I wanted to go to where the puck is going, mm -hmm. not where it is now. So I wanted to focus on the areas of growth. I believe you're pushing on an open door. It's much easier you know, if you're wrestling with an industry that's growing at two or three or four percent, it's very different to an industry like ours, which is growing at fifteen or twenty percent. Yeah. Last year, first nine months, we were up what forty six, forty seven percent organic growth. Forget about deals. But we'll reveal our numbers on March the eighteenth. And yep. you know, we've said to the market, we'll grow at twenty five percent initially. We had Incredible. a very strong start to this year. So, you know, I think things look set very fair. But it's organic growth and focusing. You know, it, it, it's much easier to operate in an environment where people are looking at the sky, is one of the ways I would put it, rather than looking at their boots. So tech companies, which are 50%, you know, our biggest client is Google. The second biggest is a well-known telecoms company with a very significant market cap and probably a most, one of the most valuable companies in the world, but we're NDA'd yeah, on it. Yeah. Third would be, would be Facebook or Meta. 
Fourth would be a BMW and Mondelez and HP is number six. And then others in the top ten, Amazon, Netflix, Spotify, PayPal. These are the companies that we work for. Very focused on top-line growth and very focused on expansion. And interestingly, when you look at the issues facing a GSK or whether a Vodafone or a Unilever, the issues they face and the activism they face, the reason that they face them is because there is very little or not sufficient top-line growth. That's really what our business is about, is generating top-line growth. Martin, when you look at these companies, these giants from San Francisco Bay, does it worry you they've become too big? Uh, Well, you know, I I have to be um, open about it. I'm subjective about it. Um, I'm biased because they, you know, we happen... We look at the digital ecosystem. It's about 20 companies. I won't bore you with running through them, but the six of the biggest would be Google, Facebook, and Amazon, Tencent, Alibaba, and TikTok, which is part of ByteDance. Yep. Their power is, you know, once you're over a trillion dollars, you know, you're, you're getting into nation-state territory. I remember, I think it was Lloyd Blankfein, actually, at Goldman, who was asked, what happens when the first company goes through a trillion dollars market cap? And of course, we're now well through two. Mm. And he said, well, no nation state would let anybody go to two trillion. Well, well that hasn't why, been the case. Yeah. And the answer to your question is, I think they're starting to exercise their power uh, in a much more responsible fashion. They're being forced to do so by threat of regulation, threat of breakup, mm. threat of restriction. I mean, the, the decision here by the CMA on... Meta on Facebook on its acquisition of Giphy didn't make any sense other than the the regulator was sending a warning to Facebook or to Meta Mm. that acquisitions were off the table. So the answer to your question is what will happen with those companies is that they will continue to grow because they have such strong market positions and they do in many cases, produce goods and services for the consumer at lower prices. And in an inflationary environment, that's important. No. But I think what will, what will happen is that they'll grow, certainly not, but not through acquisition, but through organic growth. But, but their influence on what we think, Look, their influence on my, public my debate. View, I, I, mean, I, mean, I, you know, I, I made this point. You know, yeah. Carbolfuls and the Taliban are active on one of the big social... I won't name it to get you in trouble, but on one of the big, one of the big social media companies, and the 45th president of America is banned. Yeah. I mean, when these guys get political and, and, and start to influence what we're allowed to see and Look, read, there I, is a problem. I hear what you say, Nigel, but we've always had strong political influence in our media in one way or another. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go back to the era of newspapers and magazines... Yes. And, press barons and press lords, and there have been latter-day press barons and lords, and there are today, there are still people who will enormously deserve media, and they have subjective or bias. So there's always been that case. It's very difficult. The, the fundamental issue, and I've said this when I was running WPP, uh, I described our relationship with the tech companies as frenemies, right? Friend mm-hmm. and enemy. And I always said that the issues, they are really media companies. And this is the issue well, underlying... They're, well, they're publishers, the aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, I mean, and they uh, should be held responsible... I agree. Right, for, for, for what goes through yeah. their pipes. And they yeah. can't... Now, having said that, to be fair, if you look at Meta or Facebook, they have started to invest very heavily and probably have about 35,000, 40,000 people now monitoring editorial content on Meta or on Facebook. And they've started, they've been forced, maybe, or they've been encouraged, or maybe they've taken the decision themselves to do it. 
What Google did in third party, in terms of third party data and limiting the, the use of third party data is a good example of a company taking a decision which in the short term is certainly against its interests in order to protect privacy, brand safety, kids and, yeah. and all the things that we worry about. So I, I think the answer to the question is that the, the pressure that has put on them has forced them to behave in markedly different ways, maybe not sufficiently, well, that's my according favorite, to yeah. some, okay. some people, but okay. over time that has okay. started to change. Okay. So, Martin, when it came to the... I remember once, it was about six months before the referendum, and I was at Eurostar Paris, and you were in the same queue as me, and I thought, I'm not going to talk to him, there's no point. Uh, you were a very, very ardent Remainer, but it's done, it's over. It's done and dusted. Yes. Yeah. Are we making the best of it? No. I think we're... we're, we're what, COVID has papered over the cracks. You may disagree with this, but in my view, it's papered over the cracks. So all the issues surrounding Brexit... You know, I, I think if the UK economy was going like that before, before Brexit, it's now sort of ratcheted down as a result of Brexit. It, it will, the British economy will surpass that path at some point in time. But in my view, it's going to take five or six years or maybe longer. So your views... On that part. Yeah, because, because what's necessary is for... You know, I see it with uh, S4. We're now, what, 8,200 people in 33 countries. And we've done that in three, three and a half years. Uh, and the pattern of our trading has shifted dramatically from Western Europe... Mm to North and South America, yep. to Asia-Pacific, and, and Middle East and Africa. And that's the way it has to be. So we have to get off our backsides, if I put it Good. Well, look, I, I, and, <laughs> and move away from a trading pattern that was dominated yeah. by France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. Yeah. They, they will still be very important, yes. but we must move the, the pattern. Global away. Britain. Yeah, and it, but it's not, Nigel, by bringing uh, traditional <laughs> manufacturing back to this country. That, that is a nonsense. I mean, in an era of inflation, if anybody thinks that we can re-establish re volume manufacturing, no, I'm not talking about high-value manufacturing, sure. but volume manufacturing in the US or the UK, it's a pipe dream. You know, I was in South America recently with... Uh, there is, there is labour, digital labour in, in our case both technological and creative, superb mm. quality that is available to us on internationally lower yep. prices, which we can leverage to do work in the developed markets. The same thing applies to manufacturing. It's and, a, and, and, you know, I know this is a sort of populist yeah. dream. Uh, that well, we no, can I mean, really look, we can, there's a lot we can do as a nation state in terms of decisions. But look, I want to say, Sir Martin, thank you for coming in and joining us, sharing, yeah, sure. sharing your amazingly successful life. One thing I want to ask you. Go on. Is it true, Lionel Barber <laughs> once said to me, that at Dulwich College yes. you were called Farage? Is that true? Uh, well, in, if you go up to the north of England, they call me Farage then. <laughs> so there we are. So it's not just Dulwich. No, it Back wasn't to... just Dulwich. No, absolutely. <laughs> and Lionel Barber Good got, health. But Lionel Barber got most things wrong anyway. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you, Sir Martin. <laughs>
Newspapers today, front pages, wall to wall, deeply critical of Andrew. Uh, he was he was going to get a stick, whatever he did. Uh, I think, as far as, as far as the Queen's Jubilee is concerned, this was the best outcome. Last one. John asks, do you believe Vladimir Putin would have played these games with Donald Trump? Nope, I don't. I don't think the North Koreans will be doing what they're doing, or the Chinese as bellicose over uh, the whole situation with Taiwan. Right, I'm going to be in South End tomorrow night doing a live Farage at Large.